Father, I thank you for the opportunity to be here. I thank you for the people that have come, and I just pray, Lord, that all the words will be true and that they'll be encouraging and that we will walk away with greater reasons for faith amid a world where, if possible, even the very elect can be deceived. And we see every day in our own eyes the reality of that. And I just pray in some small way we could help fight against that here today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so you make sure you're in the right place. Clifford Goldstein, seminars Baptizing the Devil. I'm, I'm the editor of the Bible Study Guide, the Sabbath School Quarterly. And uh, also, if I'm author of this book, it's called Baptizing the Devil, Evolution and the Seduction of Christianity. And I spent five years on this, three years, three and a half years just reading, and then a year and a half writing, and my talk is based on things from the book. I've pulled sections from it. I get into some things that are not in the book and so forth. If you're, inter if this, if you're interested in this, you can, I think they're selling the books at the ABC here. You can buy it on Amazon. You can download it, whatever works for you. You might not have a problem with this. You might know some people. Go ahead. Oh, Graffiti in the Holy of Holies. Okay. Okay, well, thank you, thank you. But anyway, anyway, if you have an interest, and even if you're not struggling with this question, you know, you might meet others as well, because basically what I'm going to say, what I'm saying here, and again, I already had this somewhere in here, but I'm going to start out with this. The position I'm taking... If we take our position on creation, basically, we're saying that the vast majority of the world's smartest people, the PhDs, the postdocs, the Nobel Prize winners, I mean, we're talking about the cream of the crop, the PhDs in chemistry, in physics, in biology, in astronomy. I mean, we're just talking some of the world's smartest people, best educated people, smart people, excellent, very well, they know their field. Basically, I'm saying that the vast, vast, vast majority of them are dead wrong, are dead wrong about creation. Now, that could be difficult to grasp, but I imagine most of us here are Seventh-day Adventists, okay? If you're not, well, you ought to be, okay? But anyway, that's another issue. Excuse me, that was mean, but you gotta, you gotta make this your own, you know? I mean, I can't think anything of the world worse to be a Seventh-day Adventist and not be born again, and you know? It's the worst religion in the world, I think, to be in if you're not born again. If you're born again and had a conversion experience, I don't know where else to be. But, but anyway, think about this for a minute, just as a parallel. We're Seventh-day Adventists. If there's anything we know biblically, 
there's anything that's a no-brainer from Scripture is the validity of the seventh-day Sabbath. Okay? Now, how many of the world's greatest theologians, okay, the PhDs, the postdocs, the experts in Old Testament, New Testament, in, in Aramaic, Ugaritic, Hebrew, Greek, the world's greatest Bible scholars, the smartest people, the smartest Bible scholars in the world, the experts, the wine and the dying, the fetid, how many of them are right on the Sabbath? The vast, vast majority of them are not right on it. They might even say, all right, well, technically you're right, but it doesn't matter or whatever. Well, that's wrong, okay? So anyway, I use that simply as, a, as an analogy to see the point. Okay, the world's smartest people, the experts, they're wrong. Here's one example where we could see where they're wrong. Anyway, but anyway, I want to start out, I want to spend five minutes telling a little bit about my conversion story because it does fit, it does fit right in. I grew up, I grew up in a secular Jewish home. I joked the way they kept the holidays in my family, you could characterize it like they try to kill us, they failed, let's eat. Okay? Okay. That was the extent of it. Okay? And I grew up secular, and I was raised secular, and I was educated secular. But I was always, I had this thing in me, I was a seeker. I was a, it hit me one day at about 21 years old that truth had to exist. There was a world, there was a reality, there's something here, something had to explain it. And whatever that was that explained it, that was the truth, okay? There was a universe here. I wasn't looking for God, I wasn't looking for hope, I wasn't looking for peace. I was in a pure quest for truth, regardless of what it was. If the truth was we were all, we were, you know, we're... Um, creatures, we, there's a guy from England who's got a paper he wrote saying, we don't even exist, we're just computer algorithms in a race. And, but you know, he's got some really good arguments. He's got some good arguments. So I was just looking for truth no matter what. And then I had some experiences. At one point, I said, God, if you exist, I need a sign. Okay, now little did I, I, didn't know, I knew nothing about the Bible. And little did I know what Scripture says, Greeks seek for wisdom, Jews seek for a sign. I didn't know that. I didn't, I, I didn't know the Bible. I never read the Bible. I didn't know the Bible. I had no idea about that. But I was standing on a street in Paris. I was there a while back with my wife, who's heard me tell this story for decades, and I said, honey, I think I was standing right here, right around this spot when I said, all right, God, if you're there, I need a sign. And within two weeks, I met somebody who had my same name, Clifford Goldstein. He came from Miami Beach. I had come from Miami Beach. 
he was in the same kibbutz in Israel that I had been living in. I had been gone for months. He was in the same room that I had been in when I was on the kibbutz. There were two beds in the room. He was sleeping in the same bed I was in. And I'm talking to him, and I see a bunch of books on a bookshelf, the bookshelf over the bed. And they were all a bunch of my old books that I had left. And I said, oh, because when I had been gone, I'd been gone about two months. I said, Cliff, you like my books? He says, what are you talking about? He says, those are all my books. And I go, he had some of the same books. And I looked at him and said, Cliff, are you a writer? And he says, yes, I've come to Israel to write. I lived on Israel and the kibbutz a year writing there. And then when I was on the kibbutz, I had a blonde Danish girlfriend named Tina. We're talking, this girl walks in the room. I never saw her before. She was blonde, she was from Denmark, and her name was Tina. Okay? So I said, God, I, okay, this is exactly what happened. So I got the sign. I still wasn't converted. But I suddenly, wow, there was a little more out to reality than I had been taught in high school chemistry. Okay? Well, then, I still, though, wasn't converted. Well, a few weeks later, I had spent two and a half years of my life writing a novel. This novel was my life. Nothing else mattered to me. I put two and a half years into this novel. And right about the same time, too, I was having these occult experiences. And I started thinking, wow, between meeting my double... You know, I knew there was something else out there. And then having these occult experiences, I thought, man, there's something. I'm going to go study the occult. And I'm on my way over to the library to get a book on the occult, to study the occult. And I just happen to stop at a health food store. And this guy warns me about the occult. He's talking about devil and so on. And I laugh him off. And he says, read this book. So he gives me a book. And I make a long story short, I get this book on the occult that I read I read the first chapter, because I couldn't check it out. I got it out of the library. So I got this occult book. I practiced the occult technique for the first time in my life, and I'm walking through the library with the book the guy handed me in the health food store. Cult book in one hand, first time in my life, the other book, The Great Controversy. Okay, but the bottom line was two nights later, I was in my room working on my novel. That night... The Lord Jesus Christ came to me, 1979. He said, Cliff, you have been playing with me long enough. If you want me tonight, burn your novel. Just simply like, burn your novel, okay? You can find the whole story online, Cliff Goldstein conversion. But and the bottom line was, I burned my novel. That night, I became a born-again believer, okay? Now, the reason I'm telling you this story is you'll notice... There was nothing really intellectual about this story. There was nothing. I wasn't, you know, studying logic, you know, boom, 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 boom. I got converted totally on an experience. And, you know, that night I burned the book and was born again. If you would have told me I was a sinner, I would have looked at you like, what are you talking about? What are you, I, mean, I mean, I knew nothing. But it was very interesting. The very next day, I went back to that health food store, and those Adventists gave me a Bible study on Daniel 2. And I'm telling you, now almost 40 years later, Daniel 2 still stands as an anchor 
of rational, objective, proof is too strong of a word, but powerful, powerful evidence. But anyway, the reason I brought that up is I became a believer totally through an experience, okay? I didn't work my way through it. Maybe others have. And now the, I brought that up too because when I, they first asked me to do this talk, at first they wanted to ask, how can you use science to prove your faith? And I was a little uncomfortable with that because I hope I want to show you that it doesn't work that way. You don't really, I, firstly, I guess maybe I've read too much philosophy. I don't know how you prove anything. And, you know, I really, I'm at a loss how you ultimately, how do you prove your proofs? Okay, if you're going to get right down to it. And science, you've got to be very careful with science. Saying you've proved it with science. Because scientific theories tend to have a short half-life. They tend to expire. And if you built your faith on this, and then it's kicked out from underneath you, you know, so I think in the end you can, <coughs> the, the important point here is ultimately we need our own experience with the Lord as well. I had a friend at work a while back, lost his daughter, and he said to me, he says, well, you know, it's so easy to just throw everything out. And he says, but what do I do with my experience? So anyway, I, I bring that up because we have to be careful using any of the... We, need, we have the Word of God, we have our experience with God, and that's what our faith needs to rest on. If you try to rest it on science or these other things, you can get it in trouble. But anyway, let me come back to where I was born again. And as I said, I didn't even know I was a sinner. And I met these Adventists in a health food store. I didn't know they were Seventh-day Adventists. It um, wouldn't have meant anything to me had they told me what they were. And I remember, you know, it was very hard getting born again right before my 24th birthday. I had the entire foundation of almost everything I had believed and been raised on kicked out from underneath me. I mean, it was very humbling to sit there and think that most, almost everything I believed my whole life turned out to be wrong. Okay, and it was, it took me, it was a quite an adjustment to make. But I remember, too, the one thing that I struggled, it's very funny, I really struggled with was evolution. And I remember thinking, how could I, how could I, I mean, it's all I was taught was evolution. I remember in the fifth grade, I still remember in the fifth grade having these textbooks, and they showed like a, a shallow pool, and then one cell, and then a jellyfish, and then a fish, and then an amphibian, and then these different, and then some hominid, and a line was drawn through it, and that was it. Never questioned it. And I remember in ninth grade biology class at Nautilus Junior High School, and by the way, for what it's worth, I found out a few years ago that Doug Batchelor and I 
were both in Nautilus Junior High School at the same time. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing. I said, Doug, I, Doug, I didn't recognize you. You wore your hair differently back then. So, but I remember in the ninth grade, I thought I was hot stuff because I knew what ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny is. Betsy, you don't even know what that is. And this is this idea that even though it had been discredited decades earlier, it was the idea that if you look at an embryo, you look at an embryo, the embryo goes through the various phases of evolution. It's got gills, it's got fins. I mean, this was proven decades ago, earlier to be a hoax. And here I was in 1969 being taught it. And then I remember in college, I'd ever did much in science, but I, everything was taught on the assumption of evolution. And the point was, it never entered my mind to question it. Because it was never taught in a way that you would question it. It was just taught, this is it, this is what we know, this is science, science has proved it, no question about it. And, uh, you know, in the, 25, in the 20th century, there was a famous philosopher who once said, what science cannot tell us, mankind cannot know. Okay, and it's the idea that only science could lead to truth. I mean, how many of you, see, there's this idea, it's called scientism. Most of us are, to a certain degree, under the lure of scientism. And it's pretty much the idea that science is the only pure way to come to a knowledge of truth and reality. If it's anti-science, if it's against science, if science says opposite, it can't be right. I mean, how many of you have ever been in a debate or a discussion and they say to you, but it's science. And then what's the immediate, of course, the, then the immediate thing is you're supposed to bow down and genuflect before it and surrender all recalcitrant views to it. Because, well, it's science. And look at what science has done. You know, sure, a hundred years ago, or no, a couple hundred years ago, they might have burned some unfortunate old woman selling herbs in a marketplace. They might have burned her as a witch because she, they said she started a famine that could be now understood because of different temperatures over the ocean, okay? Or that, you know, the Incas feared jaguars were eating the moon. This is something that we could better explain by a lunar eclipse, okay? But see, these, these things, you know, these don't prove, these things only prove the ignorance of human beings, okay, and so forth. Thanks to the atom, we, the science, we split the atom, gone to the moon. I just read a, a poem the other day by W.H. Auden called The Christmas Oratorio. And it's quite good, and he's got, I think it's Herod speaking. And he mixes the past and the present, and he's trying to talk about how I want to live in a day and age 
He wants to get out of the day and age where mothers give birth to twins are put to death, where the best cuts of meat are reserved for the dead, where if a white blackbird is seen, no more may be worked. No, no work may be done that day. And where it is firmly believed that the world was created by a giant with three heads, or that the motion of the stars are controlled by the liver of a rogue elephant. In other words, science has got us away from a lot of that stuff. So it's good. It's helpful. Who of us here, as I said yesterday, who of us here hasn't been blessed? I'd have a son who'd be dead right now if it wasn't for science. How many of us here could say something similar? So there's no question that, so why then should I have not been taught truth, science and evolution as, you know, because it was science as pretty much unquestioned truth. Unquestioned, you know, it's science. Science, look what science has done. And it's really this idea that science is the ultimate arbor. See, look at it this way. Every age, we look back and we laugh at the myths of previous ages. I mean, some of the stuff I just read to you, we laugh at that. And what you think, ours is the only age that doesn't believe in myths? But say, no, 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 we're past the age of myth. We've got science, and that's the road to truth. I'm saying that that's the great meta-myth of our age, that science is this pure road to truth. That's the myth of our error, okay? So anyway, well, anyway, I, um, it was, I, so I was wrestling. I was wrestling with this whole question of evolution. And uh, finally, they gave me, and, and so they're Adventists, and I'm telling them I'm struggling with this. And they're kind of laughing me off. Come on, come on, you can't be serious. And finally, I said to them, look, I'm really sorry, because I knew nothing about the Sabbath, the mark of the beast, last day events. But right then, I mean, I tell you, I didn't even know I was a sinner. At the most gut level, I knew that if what I was taught, if this evolution stuff was true, then this Bible stuff couldn't be true. Okay. Even back then, at the most gut level, before I knew any of the issues, I couldn't harmonize it. So finally, they gave me a book to read. Some creationist literature, I have no idea if it was any good or not, because look, a lot of creationist literature can be as speculative as the, quote, bona fide scientific stuff. Okay, It's amazing, particularly with evolution, how much total speculation there is. It's, um, it's, it's almost all speculation. I mean, if you're talking about events 600 million years ago, supposedly, you are doing a lot of speculating, okay? But anyway, what happened, though, was I was right before my 24th birthday. This all, I got born again. They gave me this book. I read through this book. And the scales fell from my eyes. And what happened was, 
No one's denying the fossils are in the ground. I mean, the fossils are in the ground. They're there, okay? This, I've heard Christians, Satan created the bones in the ground. To, you know, we don't, that makes us look like idiots, okay? The fossil, I mean, no one's going to die. But for the first time in my life, because I had never, ever, faced this before, was the first time in my life I was shown, hey, there are other ways to interpret how they got there. You see what I'm saying? Well, it was billions of years of evolution and on and on and on and suddenly, because hey, there are other explanations for this. And it was like instantly, it was like, wow, I'll never forget it was Wow. And you know, and I was angry. I was angry, not so much that I had been taught evolution. I was angry in the hard, dogmatic way that it had been taught me that really it was nowhere near justified in doing. And, and this leads to what's a fundamental weakness at the time in all of science, in anything that science teaches, it's a fundamental weakness. It's called the underdetermination of theory by evidence. Okay, that's a fancy phrase. Okay, what does that mean? We'll do a little test. I have a theory. And my theory says, every time you do X, according to my theory, Y will turn green. Okay? Every time you do X, if my theory is correct, Y will turn green. So you do, you're a scientist, you do theory X, and Y turns green. And you do it. And you do it. And a thousand scientists around the world do the same experiment. They do X. And sure enough, every time they do X, Y exactly according to my theory turns green. Okay? There's not one example where it doesn't. So you get done and you think, so what's the logical conclusion? My theory X is correct, right? No, absolutely not right. It, has abs- it could have absolutely nothing to do with it. What do I mean? Well, let me give you an example. This is kind of theory, silly, but I'm going to give you an example of underdetermination. You got every, t- every prediction made according to the theory took place exactly as the theory said. Every time, exactly according to theory X, Y turn green. Okay? You think, wow, that's powerful evidence for it. It means diddly squat. Here's what I'm saying. I have a theory, and my theory is that invisible spiders from Mars push everything to the ground. 
And if my theory of invisible spiders from Mars is true, I'm going to do an experiment right now to prove my theory. If my theory is correct, when I lift this book and I drop it, it's going to fall. Whoa! I just got confirmation from my theory that invisible spiders from Mars are pushing everything to the ground. You want to try it? You want to try it? You see what I'm saying? No, this is silly. It's a silly example, but it proves a very powerful, important point that to this day, the scientists and the philosophy of science has not been able to answer. You know, see, there's a, there was a famous science, philosopher of science named Karl Popper. And he says, accurate predictions, they mean nothing. You know, we tend to think, well, it's accurate predictions. The predictions, I got to be careful, I spit when I talk. So I want to, you're being warned. You're being, I warn everybody, you're in the splash zone here. I want to be careful. I don't want, I do tend to get worked up and it just starts flying. So you've been warned. But anyway, Karl Popper, one of the most famous philosophers of science, he said, that's cheap. It means nothing. Accurate predictions are a dime a dozen. And my point is, to this day, to this day, you can have scientific... See, one of the arguments that you people say is, but the science works. I'm going to make come to that later. The science, the fact that the scientific theory works, the fact that you can make accurate predictions, the fact that you can even make technology that works is a totally separate issue from whether the theory and the science behind the theory is correct. It could work for reasons that have nothing to do. Let me give you an example that we all could understand. Okay, let me give you an example that we all could understand very well. For a thousand years, 1,500 years, if you wanted to say, oh, they got a blackboard here, I don't, a whiteboard. Well, there's no mark or whatever. Just have to work on my good looks and charm and no. <laughs> That's all right, forget it. My handwriting is incomprehensible anyway. So I used to study Egyptian hieroglyphics, and my teacher used to complain. He could read my glyphs, but he couldn't read my English translations of them. <laughs> You couldn't read my handwriting. For 1,500 years, if you wanted to sail your ship from Venice, Italy to Lisbon, Portugal, or if you wanted to predict the motion of Venus in the sky, for 1,500 years, you can do it based on a theory, you know, based on a theory that the earth sat immobile in the center of the universe and all the planets orbited the earth in perfect circles at constant speeds, okay? And the thing was, for 1,500 years, this theory, it worked. If you want, as I said, if you wanted to get from Lisbon to, to Venice, 
If you wanted to predict what the stars would be in the sky, a theory that posited the Earth sitting stationary, wrong, at the center of the universe, wrong, with everything orbiting it in perfect spheres, wrong, and the spheres were moving at constant speeds, wrong, still enabled people to make accurate predictions and have workable technology. In fact, when I was working on my book, I came across a quote that blew my mind. In fact, one of my chapters in the book is based on that. One of the most famous philosophers of science, he said, a theory could be good, but not true. Okay, well, I don't know about you, but that blew my mind. That just totally blew my mind. You, you tend to think, well, what good is a theory that's false? They're wonderful. And we can build technology. In fact, let me give you, let me give you an example. Our cell phones. My lovely cell phone, whom I can't live without. How did we survive? How do, you know, it's like you had life before smartphones and after smartphones. Our smartphones use general relativity and quantum theory. And particularly quantum theory is the most highly successful scientific theory ever created, ever discovered. They make predictions, accurate predictions. As was already saw, though, that doesn't mean anything, does it? But they make accurate pictures. I once heard it described as they're as precise as you take the continental United States and you compare it to a, a width of a human hair. That's how precise quantum physics are. Our cell phones use quantum physics. And it also, our GPSs, use Einstein's general relativity. Okay, again, one of the most highly proven, though, ooh, that's a very tricky word, is science. I'll use it because we're used to it, but it's really a very tricky word. And they say things are proven, theories that have been proven, then, you know, 50 years later or no longer believe. But for lack of a better term, you've got two of the most highly successful theories in modern science. And I want to read you a quote from a book called The Elegant Universe by a guy named Brian Greene. He's a physicist. He's a string theorist. And he starts the book by talking about how powerfully effective these theories are and he says, they are almost to unimaginable accuracy. Virtually all predictions made by these theories have been correct. Okay? Again, predictions, accuracy. Okay? And then he says, however, as they are currently formulated, both general relativity and quantum theory cannot both be right. Okay, the two theories underlying the tremendous progress of physics during the last hundred years are mutually incompatible. To me, isn't that, that's, to me, that's astonishing. We have these theories, 
They make accurate predictions. We get workable technology from them, and yet there's still something wrong with either either of them or both of them. And my guess, my guess is because I'm, I'm I read a lot of popular books on this stuff, and if you're anything of a physicist, I say I'm an expert in physics as long as I don't have to do any math. Now, if you know physics, outside of time dilations for special relativity, which I could have done in high school algebra, I can't do any of the math. But my guess is because they don't have a clue as to really what's going on in the quantum realm. I mean, the stuff is so bizarre. You read the stuff, people, you just can't. These subatomic particles, if you measure them, they change. Okay, they know they're being measured. And it's not just if they're measured... There has to be a consciousness looking at the measuring device, and then they change. Okay, don't shoot the messenger, just read the stuff, okay? So my point is, my guess is probably if time should last, the whole quantum thing. But anyway, the point is, these are the most fantastic theories, incredible technology, incredible predictions. And yet, as they're now understood, they both can't be right. And again, in one sense, again, it doesn't matter. See, for some people, they don't care. See, this is a whole area in the philosophy of science. See, when I was working on this manuscript, I gave the manuscript to a friend of mine who was a scientist. I said, I want you to read this. And every time I said anything in the manuscript about science as a quest for truth, he would circle it with big red, he said, any honest scientist will tell you that science has nothing to do with seeking truth. Now, I disagree, okay? There is a philosophy of science that they're called anti-realists, They say, that's metaphysics, truth. All science could do is tell us how the world acts, okay? When you try to figure out why you're getting into philosophy, you're getting into metaphysics, some don't even say it could do that. All they say is all science could do is show us how the world appears to our senses. Because, you know, the real world is radically different than the little bit we are senses. Let me give you a quick example. I want everybody to be quiet. Let's not say a word. Okay, hang on. Okay. Now, all right, I probably should have done something quicker. Let me do this. Not a sound. Okay, now. Can you hear that? Where did that come from? Did that originate in here? That was all in the air around us. As real as my clapping, as real as the sound of my voice, and yet due to our very limited receptors... This whole aspect of reality is completely lost to us if we didn't have this device. 
to get it. So some say science can't even tell us about how the world appears. All it can do is tell us how the world appears to our senses. And that could be a totally different thing from the way it really is. But anyway, some, some say, no, 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 science tells us about the real world. That's why my friend, I didn't necessarily agree with him. I tend to think science is a way of teaching us a very specialized aspect of the way the world is, okay? Very limited, very subjective. You know, it's, in fact, if you're interested in this, this whole book, I did listen, I still listen, I've gotten on my iPhone hundreds of, probably thousands of lectures from the teaching company. And there was a series of 36 lectures from the great courses called Science Wars. And this guy did 36 lectures on the history of science and how science works. And he told about how many in the 1800s, in the 1800s, there were all these breakthroughs in technology and they were building factories based on technology that by the beginning of the 20th century, all the scientific theories that they were using to create the technology, guess what? They were all being overturned. They said, oh, by the way, the theory you have used to make that widget, we now know is wrong. Well, again, for some people, who cares? I don't care whether the theory's right or wrong. All I know is I can make my device, I make my widget, it costs me $5 to make it, the schnooks out there will pay $20 for it, and I'm happy. Okay, that's all that, and then Dr. Goldman says, listen to this, the theories we currently hold to be true are as likely to be falsified in the next hundred years as the theories that we look back on as having been falsified in the last hundred years. Okay, but people say, but it's science. And now here's the thing, too, that you got that I find fascinating in all this. I'm old enough to remember 40 years ago, 40 years ago, I want to keep track of the, wow, I'm not even, oh, lady, I'm running out of time. I got so, I do this all the time. I remember 40 years ago, Time Magazine came out with a cover article. The latest and greatest science told us that saturated fat was what? Remember, it was bad for you. The latest and greatest science told us that saturated fat was bad. Then I remember two years ago, Time Magazine came out with a cover article. And the cover article was, oh, the latest and greatest science now tells us saturated fat is not bad for you. It's good for you. Now, what changed? The saturated fat, our arteries, or the subjective human science. And here's an important point, too. They could take saturated fat. They could stick it in a laboratory. They can bombard it with x-rays. Okay? They can dissect it. They could put iodine on it. 
They can inject it in a rat. They can do whatever they want to do with saturated fat. Okay, they can do all this stuff and they'll disagree over what they see, what it means, what the results are. And yet we're supposed to kowtow and bow down and genuflect before every scientific pronouncement that they make about a supposed gene mutation that occurred 800 million years ago, they say, that helped give dinosaur wings and so forth. And yet, and that's so much of what evolutionary biology is all about. It's this. In other words, you see my point here. We are, we are, they're arguing over what they could see here and now. Scientific theories differ. And yet, we're supposed to, oh, they make a pronouncement about something 800 million or 2 billion years ago, and so forth. And yet, the, the myth is, well, it's science. Therefore, it's got to be true. Do you have any questions at this point? Because I got tons of myths. Is there anything at this point you want to you wanna ask? Because we don't have that much more time, and I have so much more. And any, any questions? Anything at all? Okay, go ahead. Okay, that's a, and you know, it's so funny. I was writing something about that this morning. The idea is that science progresses from more ambiguous theories to more solid ones, okay? That's the idea. That, and, and it's one of those things, I think there's some truth to it. But look, let me ask you a question. And then you guys decide if you tell me if you believe the answer. If, what, if science is advancing, okay, you tell me. The latest and greatest scientific theories is that our universe arose from nothing. Absolutely nothing. It arose from nothing. Out of nothing, there was this big explosion that space, time, matter, and energy were created, okay? And then out of all that, originally from nothing, okay? And then, you know, billions of years ago, on, you know, somehow out of this nothing, there was certain chemicals out of rock, air, and water, and somehow those rock, air, and water alone somehow were able to create the first life form, and this first life form was able to, you know, suddenly mutate and reproduce, and then it created everything that, you know, human consciousness, everything else. That is what the current scientific theories tell us. From nothing, there was nothing there before, and it came. Now, does that sound like progress to you? I mean, at least the ancient myths all had some kind of deity or some kind of god. Or, and they, they started out with a cosmic egg, you know, or, or they started out with a something or other. But to, see, here's the thing, too. One of the questions, one of the questions 
people, you would, it's a fair question. Why does science, which gets so much right, again, depending on right, you should even now know a little bit more right is not necessarily, right, accurate predictions, viable technology is not necessarily the same as right. Okay. In fact, this famous philosopher of science, he once said, what are the chances of you ever proving your theory true? What are the chances? He said, zero. Now, that doesn't mean the theory isn't true, but he's arguing that there's zero percent chance that you could ever prove it true, because it comes back to what we said in the beginning. You know, that you could, somebody could come along with a better theory to explain it better. Now, I'm not even saying I necessarily even agree with him. I'm just pointing that out to show that it's not all this clear-cut stuff that we're made to believe all oh, the scientists are all in harmony and they all agree, you know, and so on. It's nothing like that at all. But anyway, why does science, which gets everything, quote, right, and I put that in quotes, because again, some people say it doesn't have to get it right. That's not what science is about. Who cares whether the theory's right or not? Does it give you an accurate prediction? Can you get, make a good widget? That's all that matters. Forget about all this stuff, whether it's true or not. Okay, but we're, we're seeking truth. I'm a seeker for truth. And plus, too, when they say that, you know, 800 million years ago or whatever, the, the whale ancestor went from the water to the land and then back to the water again. They mean, really, it's not a theory, it's not a model, they really mean 800 million years ago there was a whale ancestor that really went to the land and then really went back to the water. So evolution, they're not just saying, well, it's just a model. They're trying to tell us this is exactly what happened. Okay, And if they're true, you're not going to hell because there is no hell. If science is true, what we believe in the scripture cannot possibly be true. And I deal with the whole section of the book here. Let me give you, well, I'm going to jump to this, why does science get it wrong? Why does science get origin so wrong when it gets so much, quote, right? And again, I'm using that in quotes. Science works on two fundamental theories two fundamental principles that it really has to work on, that it really, that it can't work without them. And yet, unfortunately, I believe both theories, when they come to origins, are false. And you'll see why. First theory goes back centuries ago. A guy named Abelard of Bath. And I think he's right. He says, when you look for an, a, an effect, when you have a natural effect, you have to look only for a natural cause. Okay? If you go to the doctor and you got a tummy ache, okay, it's fine if the doctor wants to pray with you. But you don't go to the doctor for him just to pray with you. Something's hurting your stomach. You want him to find out, okay, this is a natural thing that's happening here. You want him to give you, he says, hey, you're drinking too many banana daiquiris for breakfast or something. Okay, you're eating too much hot sauce. Okay, 
And you, I mean, you want him to give you a natural answer for it. And that's the way science needs to work, okay? The other, the other is this idea of continuity. Science could not work if there wasn't a continuity in the laws of nature, okay? I flew, when they built the plane I flew on here, I don't know what, what it was. They might have built the plane 20 years ago. They built it based on laws of aerodynamics, okay? And when I got on the plane yesterday to take off, I just assuming and hoping that the same laws of aerodynamics that were in play when they built that plane 20 years ago are the same laws that are in place when I flew down here and that they stayed in place. Otherwise, what? plane could have just dropped out of the sky. So science has to work. You don't look for supernatural explanations for natural events. Okay, you just couldn't do it. It would be ludicrous. You wouldn't want them to. So you go to the doctor, fine, you want to pray and, you know, less stress and fine. But you got an ache, you got a problem, it's a natural problem, you want a natural answer to it. And the continuity of the laws of nature. Now that's all fine, except they completely fall apart when you go back to the biblical creation. Go back and read the Genesis creation account. It was a supernatural event from beginning to end. God said, and it was. God said, and it was. It was supernatural from beginning to end. Okay, but if you, a priori, in your study of origins, you absolutely rule the supernatural out, then what? You're going to get it wrong. It's like there's a murder. You commit murder, and I come in, and I'm the cop, and I right at the beginning say, she didn't do it. She absolutely didn't do it. Then guess what? Whomever I arrest, whomever I arrest for the murder, by default, by the basic laws of logic, what? Has to be the wrong person, okay? And Scripture teaches a supernatural origins. And science, and by the way, there's absolutely nothing in science, well, I got to be careful that you'd say it's a, many of the early great scientists all believe that God created the world, but it's not, it's not necessarily a scientific position which says you can't use it. It's more of a philosophical position. And it's not always easy to know. Just because scientist says something is not necessarily a scientific statement. But you notice, look at the prejudice that I just reveal there. When I just said, well, it's not necessarily a scientific statement. What is the implication? Well, if it's a scientific statement, it's got more truth to it. So I could even, I can get caught up in that. Okay, so number one, it's they rule out how it really happened. And then number two, folks, when humans were first created, the world first existed, there was no death. There was no rain, okay? And then after sin came in, people lived 800 years. If you assume life as it is now, 
and the ecosystem as it is now was the way it had always been. You know, studying, what, what can studying human life now tell us about human life before humans ever died? Can you see what I'm saying? The Bible posits a natural world. There was no death in the beginning. It posits a natural world radically, radically, radically different from the world we have today. But if you say, no, 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 the way things are today, these same laws, these same rules today have to be always be there even back then. And when they're not that way, what are you going to do? You're going to get it wrong. So that's why I believe science in so many ways gets origins wrong. And yet the lure is so powerful. It's so powerful. I mean, it's amazing how many Christians, how many Christians, but it's science. Science says it. And, the, and, and again, the power of science, the technology of science, what they do is amazing. I mean, my jaws drop at some of the stuff it does. But again, that's a separate issue from whether they fully understand what's going behind it or not. And that's the myth that people have. Well, the science works and so on, and that's fine, it works. But that's a whole separate issue from whether your understanding of it is correct or not. But what happens is, is I mean, I have no problem with saying, if what the scientists say is correct, the Bible's a joke. The Bible's a joke. I mean, it's like, you know, got what, what, we were in history. God kept the whole ancient world in darkness. The, all through the Old Testament period, all through the New Testament period, all through the Protestant Reformation, until in the mid-1800s, he raised up Charles Darwin, his man, to straighten the whole world out. On, I have a section with Darwin. Darwin was... Darwin had false understandings of evil in the world. It was just, it was, and yet within 10 years, Darwinism swept the intellectual world. And they've been in, and, and plus two, and I'm not going to get into this now, this whole idea of these objective scientists seeking truth. Scientists will cut each other's throats over their theories. They will cut. In fact, I, I talk about in here, one of the teaching company courses I listened to, 36 lectures by a guy named Dr. Robert Hazen on the origins of life. And he was, you know, evolutionist. And he started, and this is fascinating. He starts the course out. He says, this is his assumption. He doesn't try to prove it, which to me was just, whoa, it said everything. He says, I am starting this course on the assumption that life began on earth 3.5 billion years ago based on the, through water, air, and rock, based on the laws of chemistry and physics. Okay? I guess I was going to ask him, have you seen anything in the laws of chemistry and physics working on air, water, and rock? today that do what you say. But anyway, that's quite an assumption, okay? Because there's nothing you'll see in air, water, and rock with chemistry and physics today that could do that. But that's his assumption. And then what was fascinating to me, 
was he starts out, he talks about the Miller-Urey experiment. This was a famous experiment in which they thought they synthesized proteins. And everyone, oh, this was it. We did it. And then later on, he talked about other scientists who attacked that. And no, 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 that wasn't right. It began in a deep vent. Life began in a deep vent. And then these other scientists said, no, 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 life began in a shale. And they said, no, no, no. They even speculated that life began in molten rock, a thousand degrees centigrade. It's kind of strange that that would be a place. And then they said, no, no, no. Now, the, what's that? I can't see that far. What is it you're telling me? Fourth, yeah, 10 minutes left. Yeah, okay. Okay. But anyway, what was fascinating, and plus, too, what was fascinating, how these scientists cut each other's throats. Okay. They hated each other, they attacked each other's theories, and so on. But what's fascinating to me was that not one, and none of the theories worked. Okay. Everyone was attacked by someone else. And it hit me. And I realized that it never entered this man's mind that maybe none of the theories worked because his assumption, his basic assumption was wrong. It never entered, and it was a fascinating thing of what they call a scientific paradigm. You, you work at, when you go watch a football game and they throw the flag, they throw the yellow flag. They're not challenging the rules of the game. They're just, the rules of the game are what they use to, 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 to determine whether, you know, did he really clip him? Did he really, you know, rough the kicker and so on. They never challenge rules and he never challenged the paradigm. And no wonder they came out wrong. But it only says, but we know eventually we're going to figure Figure it out because, well, it's science. But anyway, you buy into it. It's amazing. The vast majority of Christian churches today accept evolution because it's science. It's science. And the great myth of our era is, well, if it's science, it's got to be true. They've got scientific proof. You know, Desmond Ford, many of you know the name. Desmond Ford wrote a book called Genesis versus Darwin. And I thought, wow, that's cool. I had heard a rumor that Ford went off on that as well. So for some reason, he sends me the book, and I read it. And Ford has become a theistic evolutionist, though he's actually, he's a progressive creationist, mind you. And that's a bit more sophisticated. Okay, it's, he's a little too sophisticated for theistic evolution. And it's, it's evolution, but every now and then God jumps in and does some kind of special creation to keep it going. So how does Desmond Ford... But see, Desmond Ford, and to his credit, Desmond Ford was strong on the gospel. Okay? To his credit. And Ford understood, though, that if you don't have a literal atom, if you don't have a literal atom, you can't, the whole plan of salvation falls apart. I don't know how you could possibly read Romans 5 
Adam Christ, Adam Christ, Adam Christ, all the way through 1 Corinthians 15 and Adam Christ, okay? Adam, there's this isomorphic one-to-one Adam Christ. And Ford is aware of the problem. So I'm not kidding you. You can read it yourself. And I use this as an example to show I have a whole section in my book on what these, how foolish these Christians look trying to fit evolution into the Bible. And it's embarrassing that, you know, because he, I don't think he even calls himself an Adventist. Desmond Ford argues that the Adam of Genesis 1 through 324, okay, the Adam who, who when and Genesis 324 ends when the Lord sent an angel with the flaming sword so the man doesn't get to the tree of life. He argues that that Adam in Genesis 1 through 324 is a completely separate Adam, separated by a hundred thousand years from the Adam in the very next verse. Even though it says, Adam yada et hava ishto, and the man knew his wife Eve. Even though he says, what a coincidence, that other Adam also just happened to have a wife named Eve. And yet, the poor man is arguing that they're separate people, separate, you know, separate, two different Adams and two different E's. This is what he has to do to try to fit evolution into the Bible, and it just doesn't fit. All right, look, I've just got two minutes left. Is there any, any other questions? All right, go ahead. Speak quick and loud. What about or all our assumptions about prophecies that they just fit with the dates that we put? All right, well, you're asking a valid, look, you're, he's asking a valid question. You know, this is science, it's working on assumptions, okay? We, we work on, look, in the end, we all have to put our faith in something, okay? I deal with this in the book. See, the difference is, it's almost as if God knew, hey, look, human knowledge is only going to go so far. Eventually, all your reasons bottom out, okay? You can just, well, I believe this because of this and this because of this, and then you stop and you take a leap of faith, okay? You do it in science. You even have to do it in math, believe it or not, okay? And so in the end, yeah, we ultimately we live with certain assumptions, Okay, and I have my assumptions based on Scripture, and it to, for me they fit so much better. The world they fit so, so much better, and it comes back to the experience I talked about in the beginning. So yeah, we have to reach out on faith as well. See, we but but they say no, this is science, and this is absolutely true. I mean, there's a dogmatism in science. Woo, woo. I mean, they could be as. And in the end, the honest ones know there's no, they, they, that, that dogmatism is not justified. The honest ones know. I remember I asked a friend of mine, a chemist, and he says, oh, we know how things go down a certain level. And then beyond that, 
We don't have a clue as to what's going on. So yeah, we make certain assumptions as well. Ultimately, we all end up having to put our faith in something. So, okay, go ahead. You think you had a question, and then we probably got to wrap this. When my kids were little, they had the little puzzles, and they would pound the pieces to make it fit. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, we all do that, I suppose, to a certain degree. We all do that. But, you know, in the end, you know, the point is, folks, people have attacked me. In fact, I just got done writing. I have a column in the Adventist Review. I write a lot on this. It's called Cliff's Edge. If you get to the Adventist Review and just Google in the search engine, and I just was up very early this morning finishing it, and I've been attacked as anti-science. But being anti-evolution no more makes me anti-science than being against praying to statues of Mary makes me anti-prayer, okay? I'm not anti-science. I'm anti this idea that we have to surrender all our beliefs to it because it's science, particularly when the, I'm sorry, evolution is directly, completely opposite. It's, it's, it, it, it attacks everything we believe. I have a whole, every aspect of our faith is nullified if what the vast majority of these in, intelligent, educated world experts teach. If they're right, then we live a lie. We live a lie. And I, since I don't believe they're right, I believe the Word of God. I go on the Word of God. So anyway, if, you, if this has caught your interest, here's the book, Baptizing the Devil. I really get into this stuff in depth to whatever the degree. And I hope when you get done, you'd at least come away. You don't have to be, I am not the least bit threatened when they say, well, it's science. Because you've got to ask, okay, that's fine. What are your assumptions? Science always works on assumptions. And you go back, and then you suddenly you find that some of those assumptions, boy, that's an awful big leap of faith. You're making right here. In fact, I have a chapter in the book based on this philosopher of science. He said that basically when we do science, science is done in a swamp. I'm not saying it's one of the most famous philosophers. You could put the pylons in deep enough to hold the structure in place, but it's still ultimately in a swamp, meaning the whole foundation ultimately could come unglued. But again, on one level, it makes accurate predictions. You build technology you get what you want from it, you fly your airplanes, you go to the moon, you split the genome, you, 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 you have good you know, surgery, they have all these optics and so on. Uh, for some people, that's as far as it needs to go. And this idea whether it's absolutely true or not, for some would say, is another issue. But again, for us as Christians, as Seventh-day Adventists, with every, every doctrine we believe, everything comes out of God as our creator. And, you know, I'll end on this. Within a year after, within a century or so after Jesus died, Christ's first coming, the symbol of the seven-day creation, the seventh-day Sabbath was usurped, okay, within a century or two. Here we are, right down, right 
before the second coming of Jesus. And not just the symbol of the six-day creation has been usurped, but the six-day creation itself has been usurped. And I don't think that's just a coincidence. I think that's all part of everything ultimately playing into final events. Well, I better, ooh, I'm over. Let me just close with a prayer. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. And Lord, help us to step out on faith and trust your word. You've given us reasons in the word to trust the word. You've given us reasons in nature. There's so much in nature to point to you and your benevolent character. May we put these two together and have a firm faith to withstand in the, all the onslaughts that the world throws at us, even and especially when it comes in the name of science. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www asiministries.org or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons please visit www.audioverse.org